BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. The Bowery Boys, episode 173, Ruins of the World's Fair. The New York State Pavilion. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is sponsored by Audible, the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks for download to your computer, phone, or MP3 player. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash Bowery Boys. Hey there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with a -a one-of-a-kind episode, first in Bowery Boys history. The subjects of today's show are a set of unusual space-age ruins, seemingly from the future, which reside in Queens' Flushing Meadows Corona Park. Anyone who has ever driven to or from LaGuardia Airport has seen them in the horizon, relics from the 1964 World's Fair. This is the New York State Pavilion, one of the great jewels of the World's Fair, designed by one of America's most influential architects, Philip Johnson. In a city where real estate and architecture are highly valued and utilized, it seems bizarre to think that these alien-like structures are still standing here. If you've seen movies like The Wiz and Men in Black, you've seen these artifacts used in weird and wonderful ways. So Hollywood's found a use for them, but will New York City find something more practical to do with these? In the first part of this show, I'll give you a little background on the World's Fair itself and the fascinating history of the pavilion, featuring a showdown between Parks Commissioner Robert Moses and emerging pop artist of his day, Andy Warhol. For the second half of this show, I will take the podcast on the road and record the second half live from the Queen's Theater, from within part of the pavilion itself. And I'll be joined by teacher and filmmaker Matthew Silva, one of the founders of People for the Pavilion, an advocacy organization that's successfully bringing awareness to possible uses for this weird little treasure. So prepare for something very unexpected in this show, but I think you're going to like it. Now, let's head to the future as presented by the past and the 1964 World's Fair. The New York State Pavilion is comprised of three equally strange-looking components. The three observation towers, well, if you've seen the 1960s cartoon The Jetsons, you will know what these look like. Towers topped with saucer-like observation decks, like Tyrannosaurus-sized mushrooms. Next to it, 
sits an open steel arena with teeth-like protrusions that point inward, like a steampunk version of a Roman Colosseum, its ground level painted in retro candy stripes. Attached to that is a third building and the only part of the pavilion that's been renovated for regular use. That's the Queen's Theater, with a dazzling circular entrance hall in glass. While the theater has been the most active part of the complex over the years, the other larger components stand over it silently, unused, deteriorating, and ghost-like. Of course, World's Fair pavilions are usually designed for temporary use. Since the 19th century, World's Fairs, or expositions, have been model displays of the host country's innovations in technology, science, culture, and architecture, but rarely are the buildings themselves ever saved, often made with cheap, temporary materials. Usually they will set one or two buildings specifically set those aside for post-fair use, usually as tourist attractions. Here in America, you have examples like the replica of the Parthenon, which is located in Nashville, Tennessee, the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco, and the Space Needle from the 1962 Seattle Fair. Of course, Queen's most famous park here, Flushing Meadows Corona Park, is itself a relic of the fairs. Landscaped from marshlands and a filthy ash dump, Flushing Meadows was one of the most beloved creations of Parks Commissioner Robert Moses, already one of the most powerful men in New York in the mid-1930s. It was initially created to house the 1939-1940 World's Fair. Among the hundreds of exhibitions here were a few innovations of great importance. David Sarnoff debuted the television set here with great fanfare. I believe we've mentioned that in a prior podcast. And other inventions included the fax machine, nylon material, and the automatic dishwasher. This awfully expensive fare did leave one important venue to the park that's still there today. It's the fair's New York City Pavilion, which then became the first temporary headquarters of the United Nations from 1946 to 1951. Today, that building is the home of the Queen's Museum. That remaining pavilion would be put to use 25 years later, when the city of New York and Robert Moses again tackled the idea of a World's Fair. This one eventually opened in April of 1964 and ran two seasons until October 1965. This second, more controversial New York World's Fair bore the slogan, Peace Through Understanding. So that New York City Pavilion from the 1930s World Fair that I just mentioned, for instance, was employed into service for the 1964 fair. Its star attraction, a miniature replica of New York City called the Panorama, a marvel that ended up being one of the fair's unblemished successes. For the 64 World's Fair, the park was populated with dozens of pavilions, from corporations and industries to nations heralding their national customs and cuisines. The official pavilion of the United States, the $17 million federal pavilion, was a glittering concrete and glass box. One detractor called it a square donut on stilts, filled with the marvels of American technology and notable for a tribute to President John F. Kennedy, who had just been assassinated the year before. The federal pavilion was designed by Charles Luckman, better known for designing the 1968 Madison Square Garden. Due to Robert Moses' unconventional money-making plans for the fair, as in he wanted to make some, many countries boycotted the event. So individual American states were invited to present their treasures to fairgoers. Missouri presented a replica of Charles Lindbergh's plane, the Spirit of 76. West Virginia's pavilion simulated a coal mine. Over in Oregon, spectators could watch log rolling and bear wrestling. Illinois featured a Walt Disney animatronic in the form of Abraham Lincoln. And the constructions of these state pavilions would themselves be equally diverse. Alaska provided an igloo-shaped pavilion. Florida's would feature a 110-foot tower topped with a gigantic orange. Wisconsin's contained the world's largest cheese within a building resembling a colossal Indian teepee. But of course, one of the centerpieces of the World's Fair had to be the venue from the state hosting the fair, the state of New York. For this task, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller pointed to the up-and-coming architect Philip Johnson, who was awarded the job in February of 1962. Johnson was in good with the Rockefellers. 
His work at the Museum of Modern Art and the New York State Theater at Lincoln Center would also open in 1964. However, he was unmistakably one of America's great purveyors of modernism, abandoning marble and ornamentation for glass and steel to form sleek, powerful structures, minimal and sophisticated. For the commission to the New York State Pavilion, however, Johnson would have to expand his unique vision to incorporate the more, um, shall we say, whimsical vision of World's Fair architecture. It's commonly referred to today as googie architecture, meaning it's blatantly futuristic, rendered in bright colors with dramatic curves and asymmetry. One might think Johnson even wrong for the commission until you see pictures of his end product. The central building of the New York State Pavilion, called the Tent of Tomorrow, stood in great contrast to the rest of the fair because it was, in Johnson's own words, quote, an unengaged free space as an example of the greatness of New York rather than a warehouse full of exhibit material, unquote. In essence, it was a gigantic circus tent, 115 feet tall, as colorful as anything Barnum and Bailey ever produced in their own circuses, topped with a colorful oval crown of reds, oranges, and green plastics set inside the world's largest pre-stressed cable roof. Now, along the floor of the, of the Tent of Tomorrow here, visitors could marvel at this huge terrazzo map of the state of New York, sponsored by Texaco. In fact, all the Texaco gas stations in New York were clearly marked upon the map. And all along the mezzanine around the map, one could find a selection of all the great things New York State had to offer via a miniature highway that wove around the various exhibits. Now, next to the Tent of Tomorrow stood three observation towers of various heights, the tallest at 226 feet. You reach these observation decks by way of elevators called sky streaks, glass encasements that ascended from the outside of the towers, a novel experience in 1964, which was later used in virtually every luxury hotel built in the 1970s and 1980s in America. And finally, there was... Theaterama, an in-the-round theatrical experience that completed the pavilion. It's the third building. Theaterama, which is today's Queen's Theater, emulated the great panoramic artworks of yore. A 360-degree screen with slide images projected upon it, extolling the glories of New York State, from Niagara Falls to the Long Island Sound. This truly was one of the great buildings of the World's Fair. Take it from my favorite architectural critic, Ada Louise Huxtable, who claimed, quote, it was the architectural delight of Flushing Meadows. It sounds over the top, of course, but it was no more hokey or naive than any other portion or any other fair, for that matter, up to this point. Unfortunately, the World's Fair of 1964 was a concept dreamt up in one era of America, like I said, and hatched here in another more cynical era. Leading up to the fair, Robert Moses and the fair planners were chastised over everything from discriminatory racial hiring practices to the cost of admissions. When the fair finally opened on April 22nd, 1964, it was notable for its many foibles, unfinished pavilions, sit-ins and protests, traffic nightmares, and even fires and riots in the parking lot. The New York State Pavilion would take center stage in one of the fair's biggest scandals. And we turn back to Philip Johnson, because this is partially his fault. Now, this being 1964, Johnson being a patron of the New York art world, he decided that the exterior of Theaterama needed to be decorated. And what a better way to introduce America to a new form of emerging art pop art, employing images from pop culture in surprising and profound ways. Soon, fairgoers could delight and confuse themselves by visiting Theaterama and seeing along the side works by Roy Lichtenstein and Robert Indiana, and of course, a young artist named Andy Warhol. Now, 1964 is the year that Warhol really made it big. The Upper East Side Gallery show called The American Supermarket, which would feature Warhol's blown-up product packaging, would actually open that October. But Warhol caught everyone's attention earlier that year upon the walls of Theaterama when he presented a massive silkscreen reproduction of various criminals wanted for murder or theft in a piece entitled 13 Most Wanted Men. 
certainly a startling thing to see at a family friendly fair, I'd imagine. Now, it's been said that Robert Moses himself demanded the silk screens be taken down immediately. After all, art of a provocative nature was hardly his cup of tea. However, it was Governor Rockefeller, Philip Johnson's friend, who objected, as it was a set of mugshots prominently featuring men of Italian descent, and the governor didn't want anyone misconstruing its intent as ethnically insensitive in an election year. Warhol, though, aimed his ire at Robert Moses and decided to replace 13 Most Wanted Men with something a little bit more alarming, producing 25 silkscreen images of Robert Moses' face and calling the work Robert Moses 25 times. Well, this work was obviously never seriously considered for exhibition at the New York State Pavilion upon the walls of Theodorama. However, today, when you head out to Flushing Meadows in another area that's very close by, Look for a mosaic interlay in the sidewalk, one that depicts the visage of Robert Moses. This mosaic is actually based on one of these silk screens of Andy Warhol. So this was about as controversial as it got at the New York State Pavilion, even as many scandals popped up around various other exhibitions throughout the park. Here at the pavilion on a nice spring day, one could while away the afternoon walking the mezzanine mini highway, reviewing an exhibition from Kodak, a New York State company, featuring the world's largest photographic prints. The pavilion featured local music groups from New York, such as Doreen Pellegrino and the Heartaches, quote, a vocal and pantomime group performing the latest rock and roll hits, unquote. And New York entertainers like Brooklyn's Frankie Mark, providing, quote, an impersonation of the late Al Jolson. The World's Fair closed on October 17, 1965, steeped in news stories of financial mismanagement. This fair with the slogan, Peace Through Understanding, managed something that few major projects could. It permanently tarnished the reputation of Robert Moses, at least among lawmakers, already so unpopular with many residents of the city. The end of the fair was the beginning of the end of Moses' vast career in New York City. By 1968, he was effectively squeezed out of many of his responsibilities. And in 1974 came The Power Broker by Robert Caro, a four trillion page long indictment of Moses's career and one of my favorite books. As for the dozens of pavilions of the World's Fair, many were stripped down and demolished like the ghosts of so many fabulous fair pavilions before it. However, several notable items were saved, transported from Flushing Meadows to new homes across the United States, bits and pieces scattered throughout roadside America. Disney took both his Abraham Lincoln from the Illinois Pavilion and another group of animatronics over at the Pepsi-Cola Pavilion called It's a Small World and reinstalled these in his park in Disneyland in California. The Wisconsin Indian teepee actually became a radio station that sits besides the world's largest replica of a cow named Chatty Bell. I didn't make that up. Go Google large cow Chatty Bell. The murals of Roy Lichtenstein and James Rosenquist, which had adorned Theodorama, are now currently housed at the Wiseman Art Museum in Minneapolis. But a few remnants of the World's Fair remained here in Flushing Meadows. The centerpiece of the fair, of course, the mighty Unisphere, remained in place and sits there to this day. It's been given a couple big renovations over the years, the last one in 2010, to match the equally impressive renovations at the Queen's Museum, which is right behind it. The Federal Pavilion, the official pavilion of the United States, with its impressive staircases and surreal multicolored windows, that's the donut on stilts, well, it was kept around as well, at least for a while. And so, too, was the New York State Pavilion. There's no question that the structure was meant for some kind of later use. Before the fair, Nelson Rockefeller was quoted as saying, quote, We spent an extra half million dollars on the building's foundations just so it could be a permanent thing, unquote. Instead, the pavilion just sat there. No large-scale projects, no overarching state or local plan was ever applied to Philip Johnson's ode to futuristic architecture. Some small adjustments were made here and there. Some interior walls were added and the place was better fireproofed. But for the most part, the building was simply prepped for a whole half century ahead of it with almost no purpose. It was occasionally occupied, of course, 
But its primary role was now as a mysterious and crumbling ruin, abandoned observation chambers with dangling skystreak elevators, and a ghostly emptiness inside that former tent of tomorrow. So to find out what the future holds for the ruins of the New York State Pavilion, I'm going to go to the pavilion itself. Right now, I am taking my equipment and heading over to the Queen's Theater to record the second half of this show with filmmaker Matthew Silva, one of the co-founders of the organization People for the Pavilion. We're going to walk you through the pavilion's lonely decades, its era of abandonment, the skating rink, and we're going to look into the future, too. I think that you're going to love this, and Matthew is an incredibly engaging guy on this subject. So I'm jumping in a cab, and we are heading to the ruins of the World's Fair after this commercial break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And now, on with the show. We're back with the tale of the New York State Pavilion, the ruins of the World's Fair. But this time, I'm actually not in Brooklyn. I've moved to the pavilion itself, recording from the old Theaterama. Today, it's the Queen's Theater. It's an active theater. I'm recording in an actual beautiful room called the Cabaret. But I'm not alone. I'm here with Matthew Silva, who is a filmmaker whose latest project is about the New York State Pavilion and its history and possible efforts to save it for future usage. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Thanks for having me. Not only are you making a film about the pavilion, but you're also a co-founder of the People for the Pavilion, which is an organization to draw awareness. Tell me how you got involved with this place, actually. What's your backstory with the pavilion? My story actually isn't too different from other people my age. I was born in the mid-80s, so uh, whenever I would pass the building as a kid, it just uh, looked like this abandoned wreck that I would see from the uh, Grand Central Parkway or the Long Island Expressway. Um, I was born in Queens. Mm -hmm. My parents moved to uh, Long Island, Suffolk County, uh, when I was about three years old. I have a lot of family that live in Queens. My grandparents lived in, uh, in, in Middle Village. That's where I was born. And we would always past the New York State Pavilion on our way to the city or uh, on our way to visit my aunts and uncles and my grandparents in, in Queens. And I'd ask my parents, you know, what is that thing? And both my parents actually didn't go to the World's Fair. They came to the United States. They're both immigrants. They came to the United States after the World's Fair had already taken place. So they knew it was from the World's Fair, but their answer was just, you know, oh, it's from the World's Fair, and that's the only story I ever got. I actually can remember 
going to see Men in Black in the movie theater with <laughs> uh-huh. my dad. That scene came up where the towers turn into a spaceship. Right. My dad elbows me and says, see, Matthew, that's that's what it is, the spaceship. <laughs> and uh, I was like, okay. And this is before Google, of course. So I couldn't, mm-hmm. as a kid, cur- a curious kid, I couldn't just go and Google it and learn all about it. So it wasn't until many years later I, I went to college. I learned about some of the great 20th century architects, you know, Philip Johnson, Frank Lloyd Wright. And one day I'm in a bookstore and I see this book and it says The Architecture of Philip Johnson. And it's got this picture of the New York State Pavilion. And I said, that must be a misprint. So Philip Johnson's architecture wouldn't be rotting away in plain sight. New Yorkers wouldn't let that happen. Well, right. He's one of the world's greatest architects. And yet he's associated with this building that... It looks unusual, kind of corny, very run down. Most people see it when they're going to or from the airport or, where they're, or when they're driving down the Grand Central Parkway. It's an internationally known structure just because if you come to New York City and you, uh, you come into LaGuardia or JFK, you'll pass the building on your way to Manhattan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually, my parents can remember when they first landed in uh, JFK, from my mother from Argentina and my father from Brazil, one mm-hmm. of their first memories is actually seeing the New York State Pavilion in 1966 and 67, wow. respectively. And uh, you know, it's one of the earliest memories of, of the United States when they first got here. But you know, so I, I, I saw this building... Um, and it has a name, the New York State Pavilion. Oh, who knew? You know, so so official. Yes, very official. Mm-hmm. So what what does that mean, New York State Pavilion? So I start to do a little more research, and I learn, okay, this this World's Fair. This was a pretty big event. I didn't realize how big of a deal it was. It, you know, I'm a Met fan, so I always went to mm-hmm. Flushing Meadows to see the Mets, and uh, and I would always see the Pavilion, and I, I just had no idea, no concept of what actually took place. And, um, and I was able to see the infrastructure. I was really amazed at the streets and the buildings that were built and just removed just as quickly as they came. It was just absolutely fascinating. Just covered with landscaping and almost as if nothing was there, except for just a few buildings here or there, you know, that are still extant from that period. Obviously, you have the Unisphere, the big globe that mm-hmm. you see also from the highway. Um, that was built for the 64 Fair. The Queen's Museum, which was built for the 39, 39. Fair, mm-hmm but was also a pavilion used for the 64 Fair, and then, of course, the New York State Pavilion. So, Matthew, let me back you up a little bit. So the first part, which I recorded in my little hovel in Brooklyn, sort of set us up to what the World's Fair is, what the history of the pavilion itself, what it's made of, how it was made, and then kind of left it right there. So we're going to pick up around the end of the fair, 1965-66. Now, many elements of the World's Fair of that particular World's Fair were saved and combined with the other things from the 39 World's Fair and all the other plans that Robert Moses had for Flushing Meadows, that was going to be the new park going forward. It's interesting that all of these other amazing pavilions and, and things were torn down. Some of them were moved to other states, but this one was saved. In your opinion, do you, like, do you have any conjectures yourself as to why the pavilion was saved and why they just didn't happen to rip it down at that particular moment? One of the things about the New York State Pavilion that's a little different than some of the other pavilions is that it's made out of steel and concrete. It's a big structure. So to take it down after the fair would have cost a lot of money. And and actually, prior to the fair... People like Robert Moses and Nelson Rockefeller had expressed their interest in keeping the pavilion to be used after the fair. This is sort of where the story is a little foggy because um, <laughs> there, there isn't anything definitive that you can point to to say, okay, absolutely, it was intended to be a permanent structure forever. It was kind of like this wishy-washy thing uh, from what I was able to, to find. Yeah, it was um, sort of hinted at in, by Moses in a couple memos. Obviously, if, it, if they built it in steel, they meant it to have certain amount of purpose, but most World's Fair buildings, I mean, with almost without exception, are usually torn down. I mean, you have things like the Parthenon in Nashville, which was built for their World's Fair. Chicago, St. Louis, all these other types of World's Fair, they would have one or two buildings that were sort of the signature building that they would leave up. But for the most part, it's supposed to be cleared away and, and you know, made into a park. But this one was special for a, a variety of factors. But what's especially strange is that they they saved it, but then not a lot was done with it almost immediately afterwards. I mean, I think the thing is, is that there was no clear post-fair plan for the building. You know, it was sort of like, oh, yeah, we'll keep it. We'll do some sort of thing in it, but we're not really sure. 
And once the end of the fair came, you know, they tried to do some things in it. You know, there were some public events that went on inside the, the pavilion. I, I believe there were some, like, um, martial arts uh, events that actually <laughs> mm-hmm. happened in there in the late 60s. And then a little more famously, there were some rock concerts that took place. So, like, you know, you had the Grateful Dead played there in a, a summer concert series in uh, 1969. A little-known band from England, uh, Led Zeppelin, was in town <laughs> and played a couple shows. And, uh, you know, so, so it, it did take on a little bit of a, a life in terms of concerts, but there wasn't, again, a, a clear set program. There was no established body taking on the, the role of concessionaire, let's say, for the fair. There was no concerted effort. It, like all these events that happened in the late 60s are very sort of ragged one-off events. It had fallen apart, or at least it deteriorated to a certain level, that by 1971, I read some reporting in the New York Times of a group who raised this to the, to the level of the city council, and they were essentially saying, hey, you remember your, you guys were going to do something out here over in Flushing Meadow? Well, by that time, there was like widespread vandalism through the park, because now, of course, we're in New York in the 1970s, which, as we all know, was you know, sort of a downtime financially and in many, many other ways here in the city. So there was really a lack of support. There was no infrastructure to even support a building like this. So as a result, it fell very easily by the wayside. Yeah, so I mean, well, one of the one of the really cool features of the pavilion was this uh, gigantic terrazzo map of New York State, with mm-hmm. all the roads and cities inlaid into this uh, map that was about the size of a football field. And um, as part of the research for my documentary, I actually interviewed this guy Jerry DeLazaro, who um, his family was responsible for making the the map. Apparently, it was supposed to be taken up and brought to some building in Albany after the fair, but it just mm. it just never it just never happened for one reason or another. Which and is weird because it's such an amazing map. You see these original photographs. I mean, it was one of the largest maps in the world, right, at the time yeah. when it was created. So it's especially odd to just see them kind of people just sort of forgetting about it. However, there is a very intriguing use for the pavilion starting in the early 1970s, its use as a skating rink. And I know that in your film, you actually interview somebody who was associated with the early days of the skating rink here, right? Yeah, so going through my... uh my odyssey, if you will, and uh, <laughs> one person sort of leading to the next. I was hooked up with this um, this lady, uh, Christine Rafalki, who lives in Cleveland. Back in the early 70s, she moved to New York City with her husband, and um, they were passing the pavilion. Uh, they were competitive roller skaters, and they were passing the pavilion, and they said, oh, yeah, what is that thing? Let's go check it out. So they, they, they pull up to the pavilion, they jump in, they, they say, wow, there's this giant map of New York State. Um, why is this thing just sitting here abandoned? Mm-hmm. You know, we should do something. So it took them about a year to to get permission to become a concessionaire and actually operate the place as a roller skating rink. And they did that for three years, from 72 to 74. And, and they were essentially the only people to inhabit and really come up with a sustainable use for the pavilion. Uh, sadly, that only lasted a few years. Yeah. So, and the, I mean, I, I forgot to add this as context. That rooftop, those fiberglass kaleidoscopic gigantic roulette wheel that's basically the ceiling is there the whole time for the roller skating right yeah so the 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 roof was still intact and the lights worked you know you you'd go and roller skate and uh, and it was just like roller skating let's say at the 1964 world's fair some of the some of the panels some of the roof panels were starting to kind of come down you know it was starting to deteriorate and the concessionaires were doing their best to maintain it to keep it going i mean the, it, it wasn't just this like half abandoned place that they were roller skating in i mean it was pretty mm-hmm. it was pretty established it was pretty set up like you, you know you'd go there you'd rent your skates you, you wanted to get a hot dog or a slice of pizza or something like that they they had concessions like that where you within the building that you could go in and grab a bite um they had music playing but, but organ music this is yeah. before the days when like classic rock like yeah. this is a venue that the that led zeppelin actually played in but they were still doing the organ music yeah. for the roller skates yeah they they actually uh they, they claimed that they brought in sort of uh, the disco craze into roller skating. So Awesome. Yeah, every, every couple of nights, you know, <laughs> during the week, uh, you know, they'd have like disco night. and they'd, they'd, Some they'd, like Rock the Boat, Hughes the Corporation. Yeah, they'd divert awesome. <laughs> from the traditional organ music and play some disco music. And uh, that was kind of like a, a new thing for, for that kind of a place. And um, I found a listing in the New York Times, by the way, for the roller skating. Quote, that old merry-go-round in the sky, the New York State Pavilion, is now a roller rink 
One dollar admission, fifty cents for skates. So, I mean, if that doesn't just get your nostalgic wheels running here, um, but unfortunately, they did. They had to close it, right? Yeah, in in '74, uh, basically parts of the roof started to fall. Uh, the legend is that uh, a piece of the channeling blew onto the Grand Central Parkway, and somebody complained, uh, and that a city official came in and basically overnight shut the place down. Christine stayed in New York for about a year trying to get the place turned back into a roller skating rink, and it just unfortunately never happened. Could you imagine that today? So after the skating rink, it was basically abandoned. I read something funny that they wanted to create like a center for the performing arts for the American Bicentennial in 1976, but... It's New York in 1976, so they have a lot of other things to worry about. They're not going to worry about that. So it deteriorates during this time. And the interesting thing about it is you have these deteriorating structures in a park that's actually thriving at this time. You have, in 1978, the U.S. Open moves to the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center, which is now opened here at Flushing Meadows. Uh, You still have Shea Stadium, which is the home of the Mets. That's still going on. Later in the early 80s, they build the Playground for All Children, which is uh, apparently one of America's first playgrounds that's designed for use for handicapped children. But there's thousands and thousands of people that are coming through the park here, walking and biking and skateboarding. But these places are deteriorating very rapidly. Let me contrast this, actually, because still in the 1970s, there's another World's Fair venue that's hanging around the park. It's the U.S. Pavilion. The federal government pavilion is still here as well. From a quote from 1972, Today it harbors only squatters, vandals, drug addicts, and the occasionally curious, and both the courtyard and interior have been destroyed by intruders. So that's the U.S. Pavilion, which got so bad that they actually tore the whole thing down in 1977. They obviously did not tear down the New York State Pavilion, but I can imagine it was subject to the similar sort of outside trauma. Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly what the makeup of the U.S. Pavilion was in terms of construction, but I I would venture to guess that it was probably lighter material, lots of Mm -hmm, wood and mm -hmm. and these kinds of things, where the pavilion, you know, it's steel and concrete, so it's cinder block, so it's a lot harder to deteriorate um, under the same sort of conditions. So I, I think the, the fact that it, it's, it's built out of steel and concrete is what's allowed it to endure. So right before our recording session, the two of us actually got to wander around inside the New York State Pavilion. So I want to give a little bit of character to what it looks like now. The sort of, you know, it's, it's in actually pretty good shape considering because, of course, because of preservation efforts and community groups. I want to give a little bit of a flavor. So, I mean, you walk in, it does have a sort of arena-like feel, but the map is no longer, you can no longer see it on the floor of the building, and it's basically open to the elements. And although it's been painted, um, it still has that sort of rusty, corroded feel to it. It's got this pretty severe contrast, right? If you, mm-hmm. if you look, if you stay, keep your eyes sort of eye level you can, and squint, you can sort of imagine what it was like for the fair. You know, the, there's a group of uh, guys who went to the New York World's Fair and, in 64, and they had fond memories of the fair. And about five years ago, they started showing up to the pavilion and started painting it to make it look nicer. And they've, they've really done a great job bringing attention and awareness to the building and also just simply beautifying it. But... They paint whatever they can reach with a roller. <laughs> oh, yeah. And beyond that, uh, they, they can't touch. Um, so you have the things that are sort of eye level or within reach of a roller. They're, they look nice. And with a fresh coat of paint, things really uh, do look a lot better. But when you look up the battle axes or the, the crown, if you will, <laughs> yeah. um, they're, they're rotting considerably. Now, they're rusted. But not, not beyond repair. I mean, they can, be, mm-hmm. they can definitely be restored. But what I like about the pavilion, and I've heard it described this way, and I think it's appropriate that I'm making a film about the building because it, I've been told that it has a cinematic quality. Mm-hmm. And I think it really does. As you, as you approach the building and get closer to the building, first of all, you realize the scale of it. You know, when you're, mm-hmm. when you're driving past it along on the expressway or the Van Wick or whatever, you, you can't really appreciate the size of the building. And then when you, when you stand up 
right next to it, you realize, wow, this thing is enormous. And it's sitting in a really peculiar sort of mm-hmm. spot because in the context of the World's Fair, you can kind of say, all right, yeah, it's, it's mixed in with all these other pavilions. This makes sense. But since all those pavilions are gone and it's just grassy fields basically sitting uh, all around it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, which I think adds to the mystery and, and, and interest. But when you approach the gates of the pavilion and then walk through the little port, there's this sort of enclosure. And then suddenly as you pass through that gateway, it opens up. And you look up and there are these soaring columns and this enormous crown, or as they refer to as battle axes. And they all sort Mm -hmm. of point out in, in towards the center of the crown and it has this really monumental kind of a feel once you're in there and and the fact that it does have that rust and deterioration I think also mm-hmm. adds to the intrigue and, and mystery to the pavilion and the towers kind of have that uh-huh. same sort of a, a appeal so the yeah it's almost like a space age gladiator <laughs> arena right but like now with age it adds almost like a sort of a darker, more mysterious component to it. One of the things I like about it a lot is that, you know, it is this modern structure, Mm -hmm. but we see the decay on it. So Mm -hmm. when we think of like futuristic buildings, we think of them being all shiny and new. And what's cool about the pavilion, I think, it's got this Millennium Falcon sort of look to it. Oh, yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. It's kind of this old, beat-up futuristic Mm -hmm. thing. I think that adds to the to the mystery. Yeah. Well, it's it's actually I think we would I would be remiss right now if I avoided the various movies that have either filmed here or have been inspired by it because it actually has captured the imagination of people in a more of a sci-fi fantasy bent, and including The Wiz with Diana Ross was actually filmed here, right in the in the late 1970s. Yeah. So I'm and uh, actually in my documentary I, I talk about the fact that The Wiz was was shot here and that. Its image is shown in the movie Men in Black, but they didn't actually film here. Right, right. Um, what's unique about The Wiz is that they actually filmed at the New York State Pavilion. So it's sort of in that Dark Ages period, the late <laughs> 70s Hollywood. Universal Pictures came through and uh, fixed up the building, um, added some paint, added some lights, and put on a show. I mean, part of that has to do with The Wiz itself, which is a, you know, a, a film about setting something in a fantasy New York. Uh, it also was filmed, some of it was filmed at the old Kaufman Astoria Studios. So they were, I think they were actually even centered in New York City. So, Well, each um, of the places were like a different mm-hmm. location within the city. So you even had the World Trade Center. The, there was a, right. a shot you know, at the World Trade Center. And, the, and a subway station. But then to Men in Black, it's actually scale models. They don't actually use the buildings. Of course, they lift off the ground and are alien vessels. I also like that... It's used, it's depicted in Iron Man 2. It's actually entered the Marvel Universe here. (laughs) um, And they rewrite history where there's an alternate universe where Flushing Meadows never deteriorates at all. And it's constantly a World's Fair like every... But this is just to go to show that this place, people have projected certain things upon it. Uh, it's sort of sci-fi, wonky, astro elements appeals to a certain kind of thought. The funny thing is, is when I first came to New York, now, I was born in the middle of Missouri and came here in the early 90s. And so I remember the first time I saw it, and I thought, maybe that's because of my background, I thought, oh, that's like a really like a fancy silo grain <laughs> elevator or something. But they do that differently here in New York, so they're kind of fancy. But then, obviously, when I would come visit the park, I would learn differently. But the th- thing that struck me about it was that the, one of the observation towers had an elevator that was sort of dangling, right? Yeah. right. There was, I mean, I think that's not there anymore, but for a while yeah, there, was, taken that there was something like kind of floating, I mean, like <laughs> hanging around, like it could have snapped off at any minute. Yeah, I mean, that's something to also kind of consider uh, when you talk to people who went to the fair, they, they talk about how the, the building didn't really have rides or like anything so overwhelmingly interesting like a lot of the other pavilions, but it did have those elevators that brought you up to the, the top towers and the, and the other towers that were, you know, the top tower was about 226 feet or something like that. But the elevator itself was like a bubble. Which mm. And it's on the outside of the structure, which is a very peculiar sort of an elevator experience. Today, mm-hmm. we kind of can, we can think about that and say, oh, you know, I've seen that in Vegas or there's buildings in New York City that have that kind of <laughs> right, thing. Right, right. But, but in 1964, that kind of an elevator didn't exist. So it almost felt like a ride. I mean, you're going to this little glass capsule and you're being shot up, you know, 230 feet into the air. Yeah, everything had to be kind of a spectacle at a World's Fair. There had to be some sort of uh, element of the, of the unknown and futuristic. 
Yeah, yeah, and that and that was definitely captured with the with those sky streak elevators. So now let's put ourselves now at the beginning of the 21st century, and there's still nothing going on here at the New York State Pavilion, but there's a lot of conversations about demolition. But I mean, is, isn't it true that there's been this back and forth between? it being too expensive to develop into anything, but also too expensive to even demolish it. Part of the reason why the building has endured, again, is because it's built out of steel and concrete. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of doesn't require a whole lot of maintenance, so it just kind of can sit there. But at the same time, to take it down, to actually act and do something, it takes a lot of money, a lot of investment to safely dismantle that. Especially given the fact that just a few feet away, I mean, I, I guess it's probably about 30 or 40 feet away, there is a theater, an oh. operating theater oh, right. you know, that we're sitting in right now. So, you know, when, when a building is going to be demolished, the, the, there are certain safety considerations mm-hmm. to be taken into account. So, so again, those are the, some of the things that have saved it over the years. Um, but, yeah, to... to Come up with a use for it to have the will to to go forward with that. That also takes a <laughs> mm-hmm. monumental feat, right? Because you have to have the finances to actually put forward some sort of a plan. You actually have to, have to come up with a plan, and then mm-hmm. you have to have a group of people who are going to maintain it. And and you know who's going to maintain it? Who's going to keep it going? Mm-hmm. And it's it's a parks department building, so you'd think that the parks would take on that task, but that's a lot for the parks to take on. You know, of course. so especially uh, whatever role it took, they would have to sort of fold that into the park service right. and you know that's difficult it's it's a difficult thing to to sort of navigate so it's it's not such an easy and cut and no. dry thing even if the money was there today right <laughs> it would still be a very difficult thing mm-hmm. to logistically navigate and manage right. so now we're going to get back to that but i should i should add since we are literally recording here and thank you to the queen's theater for letting us record here the queen's theater actually performed during the 70s they did actually have plays here it's a still thriving theater today and it's the only one of the three components of the new york state pavilion here that has a current purpose to it there was sort of this movement to bring theater back to Queens. You know, each borough kind of had a, a theater house and Queens didn't. Yeah, uh-huh. So there was this movement to, to bring theater back to Queens. And the theater went through a, a pretty substantial renovation in the early 90s, I believe, and then went through another significant um, renovation just a few years ago. I think it just completed in 2012, where they added the structure onto the front. It's like a nice round lobby. They call it the nebula. <laughs> and um, yeah. and it's, it, it's, uh, it's a beautiful structure. And the, the shows that they have here at the theater are really fantastic. It's a really beautiful, thriving structure <laughs> with this haunted house <laughs> right, looming right. right behind it. You it's know? like the weirdest haunted house in international history. So let's go to the present now here. Tell us a little bit more. I want to get into the people for the pavilion at this time. Tell me a little bit more about the group because we're in this really interesting time right now for preservation efforts because we live in a city where a lot of people are feeling certain things are slipping away. There's an increased value or an increasing value to things that are old and actually things that are 50 to 75 years old are having a renewed interest right now. So if you were to say start a group called People for the Pavilion like 15 years ago, would it be as successful? We don't, I don't know exactly because there really wasn't one. Not one that was quite as, as prominent, but, but you started the group a couple of years ago. Is that correct? Yeah, well, it's a it's kind of a long story. Do you want me to tell yeah, the whole story? Tell it. Yeah. Okay. So you got a microphone in front of you. We're in the Queen's Theater. We're in the shadow. We're in the shadow of the observation decks. Now is the moment to shine. All right. So <laughs> my interest in the building started as a kid, and then many years later, I, I you know, like I said, I came to learn that this building was built by a renowned architect, and was just sitting there rotting. I'm a huge fan of architecture. I studied architecture at the master's level for a couple of years. Um, I was going to be an architect. And, um, and I fell in love with a bunch of adaptive reuse projects, namely the High Line. I mean, I, I fell in love with that project. I thought it was an incredibly beautiful design problem. Exquisite solution was adapted to that, that problem. I see the pavilion as, as a similar design problem. I mean, it's got different challenges of course there's different components and different uh, uses and the possible uses but yeah Yeah, but but you know this sort of infrastructure that's sitting there that has underlying value you know has a has a future i think 
I'm actually a middle school and high school technology teacher. So one of the things that I wanted to do was bring design into my classroom. So I brought the problem, the design problem, to my eighth graders as a challenge. Okay, here's this building that you've always seen on your way to the city, and let's come up with some sort of new use for it. And um, we did two case studies. We studied Old Penn Station Mm-hmm. And the High Line. The reason for that was we looked at Old Penn Station and how you have this beautiful piece of uh, civic architecture that was destroyed, was dismantled for short-term gain. And you have the High Line, which is this building that is, was considered blight. They wanted to knock it down. And if it was knocked down, nobody would ever even know about it. it would, nobody would care well, that it, it was, was gone. Yeah, I mean, it certainly was not the architectural mar- marvel that right. Penn Station was. Absolutely. In fact, I would say it was an eyesore for most people. Right. But instead, a group of people had a vision, turned it into something great. And now it's uh, one of the greatest attractions in, in New York City. Yeah. So in learning about those two situations... Um, And looking at the New York State Pavilion, uh, we tried to come up with some sort of new use for it. So we actually, we went on a field trip then to the High Line and we went to Flushing Meadows and looked at the (laughs) pavilion up close and personal. And the kids came up with ideas like turning it into a water park and a, uh, you know, (laughs) a a, a theater and a (laughs) mini golf place and um, international food market. Some ideas that were really far out, but other ideas that were really cool. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Uh Flushing Flushing and Corona are probably the most uh, diverse parts of Queens. Queens is probably the most diverse uh, area in, in the, the world, pl- in the planet. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine going to an international food market here at the, the pavilion would be, be kind of nice. So in doing that project with my students, I did a lot of research on the pavilion and I started to network with a lot of people who have sort of intertwined their lives with the pavilion. During that time, I met a guy named Frankie Campione, who about 15 years ago came up with this idea to turn the building into an air and space museum. Mm, He he pitched uh this concept that kind of unfortunately didn't take off and it was before the days of social media so he couldn't really oh, like you know that uh, would have been a great idea yeah mm-hmm. yeah it was it was a neat idea and um but it, it never it never got off the page so around that time that i was doing that project with my students i started a facebook group called people for the new york state pavilion i figured you know this might be a way to to learn a little more share some pictures and i was going to write my master's thesis paper about oh, the mm-hmm. pavilion I, I i realized that there was this hole sort of in understanding about the pavilion. I actually went to the Queens Museum one day and um, I was looking for like a book about the pavilion. A book, a postcard, anything. And I asked this woman at the gift shop, I said, you know, do you have anything about the New York State Pavilion? And she says, "Uh, what's the New York State Pavilion? (laughs) So now this is like a hundred feet away from the New York State Pavilion. So I'm like, okay, wow, people really don't know about this thing. And then I would also talk to like family members and and friends. And I'd say, you know, you know that building that you always see, you know, do you know know that had this beautiful map of New York State and that it was the thing from the World's Fair? And people didn't know, Mm -hmm. but they seemed to be really fascinated and interested in what I was talking to them about. So I I, I decided I'll write a a paper about this and maybe I'll try to get it published. And it'll be the first book about the New York State Pavilion. And And it became, it went from a book to a film. Yeah, well, months later, Uh months later, I, I decided, you know what? I think I'm going to instead, when I do my interviews, I'm going to bring a camera and I'm going to interview these people and I'm, I'll turn it into a film instead. And in doing that, it introduced me to people who I never would have been able to, to meet and get in contact with, namely fellow here at the Queens Theater, mm-hmm. um, Willie Mosquera, who uh, hooked me up with uh, another young guy who is really, really passionate about the, the pavilion. His name is uh, Christian Doran. Uh, a few months later, got... Uh, hooked up with a young man named Salman Khan. Together, we decided that we were going to try to utilize the film and social media to bring about a, a critical mass, I guess, of people that uh, want to see the, the pavilion turned into something great. So through social media, through Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, we've been able to rally up some excitement and interest. Yeah, create a movement here. Now, I have to say that six months ago, I came out here for an open house that was put on by the New York City Pavilion Paint Project, right? So these were the guys who came, who came out here to kind of maintain the building, yeah. right? And they had an open house. When I got out here, I couldn't even get in. There were 5,000 people in line to get into this. This was not something that was like hugely advertised either. That's at that moment is when I realized that like there was huge interest in this place. Everyone has their own experiences that they bring into this. And so there's obviously a huge attraction 
an appeal to this space. So the big question, I guess, is everyone loves this place, right? And the love is only improving and increasing, especially with groups like yours. What to make of this place? I mean, there's so many ideas. There's so many directions it could go. Just as your opinion, I mean, what are some of the possibilities that you, maybe you, if, if you had a billion dollars planted in your lap today, what, uh, what direction would you like to see it go? We like the idea of, of almost not sharing our opinion for what it could be because we <laughs> want to leave, leave it open. I mean, we, we think that the building as a design problem presents unlimited possibilities. Ultimately, we want it to be something that is open to the public, that has some sort of flex you know, use where it could be uh, just simply an an open arena that people could just walk through when they're walking through the park, and you, you know you don't have to pay admission; you just walk through it. Just Simil- sort of a just venue, like, right? Like, or, or you know, think of it almost like like the High Line, how you can kind of sure. just walk on, walk off, just go on on your day. But then also, private events could take place there: um, concerts, your prom. You know, uh, <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, I mean, Maybe the best prom ever. Yes, I, I've actually uh, people have posted on our social media that their prom was held there in the late '60s. People have said like, "Oh, I, in 1968, my prom, you know, was oh, held really? at the New York State Pavilion." I could take my senior pictures there. You know, one of those <laughs> right, like cheesy right. '80s like. Um, so, but you endorse a purpose. I mean, that's the interesting oh, thing about this place. This place has been around forever as a ruin, and so I guess the the fear is if it's around like this too much longer that the specter of demolition gets greater and greater i think this is sort of the last shot you know what <laughs> what's happening now with all the excitement i mean obviously if you've been following this project at all queensboro president melinda katz is is behind us in a very big way the mayor is behind this project even the governor put some financial support behind this um, back in june they allocated uh, together over six million dollars to the the project to sort of get the building up to new electrical right. codes mm-hmm. and start to repair some of the concrete and these sorts of things. A lot of people go to Flushing Meadows and you have this one part of real estate that people cannot access. They can, mm-hmm. they can walk up to it, they can look at it, they can admire it, but it's just this giant ornament just sitting there. And so with the work of like the painters, the, uh, the New York State Pavilion mm-hmm. Paint Project and the Parks Department, They've been able to get the building open several times this year. I think they did three open gate events during 2014, and I'm sure there are more to come. And those are really great events because, for one, they've done such a great job of painting the building, making the building look nice from the inside and out. And it allows people to get up close and really imagine. I mean, I think, I think mm-hmm. the building is a building that makes people sort of dream. Um, mm-hmm. I know for me, I didn't go to the fair, but when you look at the building, it kind of has this ultimate treehouse kind of appeal. Yeah, it and, does. And, uh-huh. you know, people like to climb to the top of, uh, of things. They want to go get a, a, mm-hmm. a nice view. And, and um, when you look at those towers, you say, I want to go up in those towers. I want to see that view. I want to see, see what the city looks like from up there. Because I'm sure it's gorgeous. Because, again, Queens is not an area of mass skyscrapers. Right. So the view from the observation decks would be extraordinary. Yeah, and, and also just simply going into the tent of tomorrow. I mean, a lot of people don't realize how big it is. And mm-hmm. so I think that once you get up close to it, when you see it, then you start to really see the possibilities and start to imagine. I think that's, I think that's the most exciting thing about the pavilion. So if you want to see the pavilion, the, the Tent of Tomorrow, the Observation Deck, the Queen's Theater, head on out to Flushing Meadows Corona Park. It sits right next to the Queen's Museum and next to the Unisphere. They're all nestled together. As the date of recording, it's all closed off, but there should be occasional open houses and hopefully more often, I'm assuming. I hope. I hope. I mean, I, I don't, nothing is, nothing is scheduled at all, but April will mark the 50th anniversary mm-hmm. of the second year of the World's Fair. I would venture to say they're probably going to do probably. another open gate event, which would be great. So when might we see your film? Uh, at least give us a, a, a slight projection of 2015 um, where people might be able to to check it out the the film is slated to be released in february of next year 2015 there's a good chance that we might be able to squeeze in a a premiere before then Uh, right now i have a a composer working on uh, an original score which is finishing touches finishing touches Uh very very exciting i still have to do some last bit of processing got to get my audio mastered but it's it's essentially 
done, which is really exciting. I, I'm really eager to share it with the public, and, and I hope that it's something that will contribute to the process of just bringing people under the umbrella of awareness, basically, for the pavilion, because I think it's a, I think it's a great space. I think people will, in the future, have a lot of fun in this building. So I'll put up the trailer and maybe another clip or something on our blog, barryboyspodcast.com, where on top of that trailer, I'm going to have the most colorful pictures of this building. I mean, you can't even believe how colorful. Th- it's like, when you see these pictures from 1964, it's like the, the Partridge family exploded inside. It's like, it's like constant pastels. It's, it's really a lovely place. And to contrast it with how it is now is really striking. So I'll have all those types of pictures up on the blog. Yeah, if you want to if you want to see the trailer or even contribute to the the last bits of production, you can go to gofundme.com/nyspavilion.doc. Right. Uh, one of the things that's uh, interesting about this project is when I started it, I, I said to my wife, uh, "I think I'm going to make a documentary about the New York State Pavilion." She said, "Great." Um, you're not using any of our money. So okay, that's going to be kind of difficult. So I started a, I started a fundraiser on GoFundMe, and uh, it's been instrumental, uh, you know, without, without the support of even just the, the few bucks that some people chipped in, it would not yeah. exist. I'm so. telling you, there's, like, there's such fascination with the place. I'm not surprised that it didn't take you that long. Matthew, thank you so much for oh, joining me. And I have to thank the Queen's Theater for letting us record here. Matthew, this has been totally terrific. Next time you're doing a, a, a documentary on another weird ruin of New York, you have you have a, <laughs> you have a reserved place in the seat across from me. Thank so, you very much. So thank you all very much for listening. Tom will be back for the next episode for our Christmas episode. You will not believe what we have cooked up. It's kind of madhouse. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.